girls are complicated. of the Christian Feminist Podcast. It's that time of year again for our annual Christmas episode, and tonight we'll be discussing the Bible passage known as the Magnificat. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, one of the founders of the CFP. I have a PhD in Literature and Gender Studies from Florida State University, and I'm currently living in Woodstock, Georgia with my husband Michael of the Christian Humanist Podcast. With me tonight, we have a full slate of panelists. First, we have regular panelist Ilea Danner-Grubbs. Hi, Ilea. Hi. How's it going? Good. Um, I am Ilea Danner-Grubbs, and I live in Birmingham, Alabama with my husband and my two children. And uh, I went to Wheaton College and studied uh, Bible and education and French. And uh, I teach women's Bible studies at my church, and I'm really excited to be talking about this. Thanks, Ilea. Also, my friend Sarah Thomas is joining us uh, tonight for the end of this season, and she'll be back with us next season in the spring. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Sarah. Sure. I am Sarah Thomas. I have a PhD in English from Florida State University. I currently live in Atlanta, Georgia. I moved back to the area about a year ago, and I teach high school English at one of the area high schools, and I'm excited to embark on tonight's discussion of the Magnificat. I am... um, I am a cradle Catholic and a big fan of Mary and excited to have this conversation tonight. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, And last but certainly not least, we are very excited to have a guest with us tonight, author and speaker D.L. Mayfield. Danielle lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and two children where they work and serve alongside Portland's Somali refugee community. Her first book, Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith, was released by Harper One in 2016. She's written lots of essays you've probably read for publications like McSweeney's, Sojourner's, Vox, and the Washington Post, for whom she covers what has semi-jokingly been referred to as the paper's Mary Beat. More on that later. So happy you're here with us, Danielle. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for the great introduction. And I just want to say I met Victoria last year, and we just had the most delightful time together. And so I'm really happy you asked me to be on here to talk about the Magnificat. Uh, I'm happy too. But before we do that, uh, I want to hear a little bit more about the work you're doing in Portland. And also, you've got a new book coming out next year, right? I do. Yeah. So I, about my educational background, I went to school and got my degree in intercultural studies at a Bible college, which is basically, you know, missions 101 for uh, Protestant evangelicals. And then I ended up living and working with refugee communities here in Portland and it kind of upended my life. And that's all in my first book, which you already mentioned, Assimilate or Go Home. Because of those relationships, I went and got my master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages. So that is something 
I continue to do here in my neighborhood on the very outskirts of Portland. And um, I'm having a lot of fun teaching English mostly to women with small children who have had um, barriers to accessing education in their lives. And most of them come from a non-literate background. And then for my actual like making money, I do freelance writing and writing books. And my next book is uh, coming out in the spring through IVP. And it's called The Myth of the American Dream. Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. So I like to think about these big picture issues and wrestle with them. And yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see how people respond to some of these big, you know, bigger things that I'm, I'm wanting to talk about with other people. Uh, well, I got to hear a sneak peek of some of the chapters of that book uh, when we met, as you said, last year. I got to hear some lectures and uh, I really enjoyed it. So I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that the reception will be great and that it'll start a lot of really interesting conversations. Okay, so let's dive into the topic at hand. As I said a minute ago, the bulk of tonight's discussion will cover the Magnificat, which is the name typically given to the text of Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Magnificat is Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord, which is the first phrase Mary speaks in the passage. A little bit of context for the passage itself. She's visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who's also pregnant at the time with John the Baptist. And in the passage directly preceding this one, Mary greets Elizabeth, which the which Luke tells us causes John to leap with joy in her womb, and then Elizabeth speaks some of the first lines of what Catholics call the Hail Mary. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Uh, That's when the Magnificat comes in. Mary responds with a canticle or song that expresses how she feels about God choosing her to be the mother of Jesus. This canticle is used in lots of different Christian traditions. In the West, Catholics and Lutherans use it in Vespers and Anglicans in Evensong. The Eastern Orthodox Church also sings the canticle in Sunday Matins. Lower Church Protestants don't use it as much. When they do, uh, typically they do so during the Advent season, uh, which we're in right now. So that's a little bit of background on the text, but before we dive in deeper, I wanted to take some time to talk about how we've experienced the text ourselves. As most of our listeners know, I grew up Southern Baptist, so mostly I heard this passage about once a year at Advent. And when it was preached on, there was more emphasis on the earlier lines, the part that's about Mary accepting what God gives to her uh, and, and being contemplative than there was about the later lines, which are much more about how God's plan involves inverting social structures and shaking things up. Uh, It wasn't until I was an adult, especially in the past two or three years, as uh, I've been feeling really drawn to Catholicism and Marian theology, that I started thinking more deeply about the power in the passage and about what an incredibly phenomenal example Mary is of how to have faith as a woman specifically. What are your experiences of the passage? Uh, Sarah, I'm sure you had a different experience than I did Uh, being raised Catholic. So how about you start us off? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So my, um, so my experience with the Magnificat 
is as something that shows up actually um, in addition to coming up during the Advent season comes up within the context of what Catholics refer to as the Feast of the Visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is one of the seven uh, Mary-focused feast days within the Catholic Church and occurs on May the 31st. Um, if you count the the day that's set aside uh, for St. Anne um, as the mother of Jesus then, or as the mother of Mary, rather, then there are eight Marian feast days. Um, but it is the gospel reading for that day. And within, so I heard it every year. And within the context of that discussion, my experience was always that the focus was on Mary's faithfulness to God, on using her assent to God's plan as a model for our own lives, which as a young person, I sort of took as a matter of course, since I grew up uh, immersed in a tradition that embraces, uh, that embraces Mary and her role within the salvific mission of Jesus and of Christ. Um, and, but as I have gotten older, something that I've come to realize is that more than, uh, more than, submission, it really is a question of, or for me, it really is not so much a question, but an assertion or an acknowledgement uh, within the words of the Magnificat, an opportunity to say yes, to be an active participant in things that are difficult, but are working towards the coming of the kingdom. And that is one of the reasons why I find, I continue to find myself drawn uh, to the Magnificat and uh, to some of the other Marian prayers that we might get a chance to talk about uh, maybe at another point if we don't get a chance to do that tonight. Thanks, Sarah, for sharing that. I really like your emphasis on Mary's activity and agency. Uh, Danielle, I know that you were also raised in the church. Uh, you mentioned in your Washington Post article that we'll get to in a few minutes that your father was a pastor and that uh, that experience growing up so closely associated with your home church shaped your experience of the text of the Magnificat. Can you share more about that with us? Yeah, so I'm like evangelical of evangelical, you know, pastor's daughter. Um, I didn't even know what denomination we were a part of. You know, we just like read the Bible and did what God said, you know, like that kind of evangelical. And um, I think I just had an over familiarity with the Christmas story, but I don't really remember ever truly engaging with the Magnificat. And I don't remember the entirety of the prayer ever being spoken aloud in church. And instead, Mary was this very silent figure in the nativity scene. Um, and she was mostly there to be pregnant with Jesus, right? And to be quiet. And that's really what I remember is I never felt drawn to Mary. I never felt like she was someone I could relate to. She was just silent acquiescing figure um and it, it felt kind of scary like she was so young and this was like kind of forced upon her and I I do know that um I would say like six years ago we were part of this mission order where during the advent season one of our leaders would sing a song based off of some of this text of the Magnificat but it was only the first three verses actually 
And so, again, I didn't really resonate with the more revolutionary parts of it until I would say about three or four years ago. And they just, when I, I don't even exactly remember where I was, but when it finally stood out to me how radical this prayer was, I just thought, how could, how could I have heard this or been reading this for all these years and just missed it? And in in some ways it kind of scared me, you know, and I think it's good to be scared every once in a while by how much we can miss based off of what our traditions, you know, teach us to notice. And so I think I'm I'm catching up to the Magnificat and how important it's been for so many people throughout so many years. And yeah, it's a it's something I'm now jumping fully into and I love it, but it was definitely not a part of our Christmas traditions. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. My experience in terms of the kind of really small holy mary meek and mild idea um is is much the same and i feel like now that i'm transitioning into the catholic tradition it's so much bigger and like you said i i feel like there's so much that i uh that i missed before and and that um is is kind of getting exploded um how about you what's your experiences of the text Oh, like you said, yeah, I grew up um, in a non-denominational evangelical church, and uh, it's very similar to what Danielle was saying. I I didn't have any experience with this text growing up. I didn't know the word Magnificat until college. I didn't, um, there's just not ever anything that was emphasized. Like you said, the the part where she says, I'm the Lord's servant, you know, that when she's talking to Gabriel, like that part was talked about because it shows her submission and in a very fundamental um, church in the South, submission in women is obviously going to be emphasized. And uh, I was thinking back, I heard, I definitely heard uh, Mary Did You Know and Breath of Heaven, that Amy Grant song, um, way more than I heard the actual Magnificat from the Bible, um, because those songs really emphasize like kind of her just being bewildered and pondering and you know, submitting to God and, and very little about her having any kind of agency, like you were saying, Sarah. Um, so yeah, it, it just, it was just not a thing. I mean, I think I knew that she had a a response because I I occasionally read through the Bible, but it was never anything that I remember hearing taught or spoken about. It was always just kind of the Luke two passage where it gets to Caesar Augustus and on. Uh, that's, that was my engagement with it growing up. Okay, so now that we've kind of laid the groundwork with our past experiences, I think we should definitely dive deeper into the text itself. Uh, Leah, can you read the passage for us, and then maybe we'll uh, talk a little bit about um, what its language is doing. Yeah, this is Luke one forty six through 55, and this is going to be in the English Standard Version. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So what language jumps out at you guys when you hear this passage? 
I just love that it is so steeped in the Old Testament. Like, that's the first thing that jumps out to me is that she's quoting, like, two different psalms directly. She's referencing, like, three different um, prophets. She she obviously has been, you know, steeped in the scriptures to the point where this just comes out of her, you know, when she's singing the song of praise and um I, that's the first thing that I always notice is that she's referencing all of these different um, scriptures that she would have studied. And especially because we tend to think of, oh, women in that time were uneducated. They weren't allowed to be involved in, you know, spiritual things much. But obviously she was, you know, it, I don't know how or why, if that was normal or unusual or whatever. But it it's very obvious that she, she knows a lot about the scripture. And it, it makes sense that she would, right? I mean, God didn't choose her for no reason she she proved herself to be focused on the right things and to be worthy of the incredible blessing that she was given as worthy Mm -hmm. as a human being can be um Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean it makes total sense that she would be well versed in scriptures and that that would be i love the way you said just coming out of her um that she was she was so steeped in it that that of course that's what came out of her mouth that's awesome uh what about anybody else there are particular uh pieces of language that jump out here yeah i mean i think that mary directly addressing the mighty versus the lowly and the rich versus the hungry you know it really makes me think about how jesus sort of introduced himself to the world um, in Luke 4 is one of my favorite passages ever when Jesus is in the temple and reads from um, Isaiah saying, you know, this is what the spirit of the Lord has is upon me to do, right? To preach the good news to the poor. Um, So to me, I just see this incredible theme of this is where Jesus is going to be. um, And this is where Jesus continues to work in our world. And it's just so intense. Like, (laughs) I just still think uh, just even the visuals of like casting down the mighty and sending the rich away. This is not a sugar coating. This is very prophetic, right? It sounds like one of the prophets um, from the Old Testament. And I, I guess I've just, I never caught that before. It is. It's very prophetic. And it, um, I, I love that. Uh, Aaliyah was talking about how it reaches back into the Old Testament, and you mentioned, Danielle, uh, how this points to um, sort of Jesus's reversal of order, the idea that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Um, So this is doing so much work in terms of positioning itself within other parts of the Bible. Yeah, it also stresses the covenant language, which reaches all the way back to, you know, Moses and Abraham and, you know, going all the way back, like talking about has said the the word for loving kindness or covenant mercy like it's it's putting all of these pieces together of like the story of Yahweh from the beginning of his revelation to Moses all the way through to now it's it's really profound wow i we've only been talking about this uh text for three or four minutes and already we've covered the entire length of the bible that's so much more than just mary being meek Absolutely. And one of the things that, that 
that we've all been saying so far and that I find so compelling is that this language that we continue to find ourselves drawn to is the language from the second half of the Magnificat, which I think many, you know, many of us have been talking about is the part that kind of gets that that kind of gets glossed over um, in in some discussions of Mary's canticle and the message that she's that she's bringing in this song that she's singing and and at the same time that that uh to build on the idea that we've mentioned already that that in addition to looking back to the old testament she seems to be anticipating jesus's ministry uh for on the uh, feast of the visitation in the catholic church the other readings that are paired with this magnificat are um, uh, the first reading is from Zephaniah, or the second option for that is actually from Romans, so that you're moving forward even into the epistles, uh, even beyond the gospels themselves, um, that are addressing these messages that are um, that are relating back to this canticle and back to the gospel, but also are relating back to Mary's message um, and the song that she's singing, which I I had not paid as I had not paid as much attention to even as, as a younger Catholic and hearing these readings regularly looking at the, their interconnectedness is something that, uh, that I'm really enjoying exploring with you all in this moment. Uh, is there anything else we want to say about the language of the text, um, before we place it in a bit of a different context? I just wanted to add that it also really closely parallels uh, Hannah's song in First Samuel, which is really interesting. Like not only some of the main themes, but actually the structure is very similar and the the order that she goes in. Um, it's just it's interesting that there is an entire kind of um, genre of songs of deliverance sung by Hebrew women throughout the Old Testament, um, and and that this is, you know, kind of, they all point forward to Mary in, in a way. They're all kind of the the prototype, the prototype. And then you get to her in this, like, fulfillment of everything that they've been looking forward to. I think that that's really beautiful. That is beautiful. Thanks so much for sharing that. I hadn't thought about Hannah's song. Um, I was thinking that there's similarity in the canticle structure to uh, the song of Simeon, though, um, of course, that comes at the end of his life and um, is, is a little different. But I, I love what you said about Hannah, too. That's great. Do you mind if I toss a question out to you all uh, before we move on about the canticle? In our discussions, in our discussion so far, and our interest in um, Mary's participation in these uh, prophetic songs and in these songs by women coming out of the Old Testament, is this song's appearance in the Gospel of Luke then uh, something of a curiosity, or is there a way that we can contextualize this? I'm trying to remember my own uh, education in gospel origins and the intended audiences for the gospels. And if I remember correctly, the gospel of Matthew is the one that is directed to a uh, Judaic audience and is uh, focused on 
uh, making a point of addressing the fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament, whereas Luke is uh, addressed to Gentiles, or am I misremembering that? No, that's correct. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Okay. That's right. So, okay. Oh, good. Okay. Dr. Bob would be so proud of me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for remembering that. But it within that context, then, does it seem curious to us, or is there a way for us to, to understand, then, this kind of deliberate nod back to the Old Testament in a gospel that's directed at a Gentile audience? Or are we going to get too far into a, a different set of weeds if I toss that question out? <laughs> I think it's very applicable. Um, Okay. Yeah, I think it is too. And I I also think that it matters who else is there. Um, So we have Elizabeth, who Mary is speaking to. So there are these two women who are um, pregnant kind of by strange circumstances. uh, And they're related to each other and they're seeking solace in each other and uh, they're probably the only two people in the world who can understand each other's position um, to the degree that they can. Um, so I, I think that expansion of kind of the, the universe um, added to the reaching back into the Old Testament would um, would connect to the expansion of the audience, the, the Gentile audience also, um, in terms of, we, we haven't really talked that much about John the Baptist and his role. Um, I think he does his own kind of pointing forward in terms of preparing the way uh, for Jesus. So I think that um, pairs with the Old Testament reaching backward and the Gentile expansion in terms of the pointing forward too. So I think if, if you think about who else is there, um, it, it works with the um, and we're giving this message to a bigger audience. Well, and also, I mean, most scholars believe that Mary was one of the sources that Luke used for his gospel. So it is yeah, uh, applicable. That's right. in a, yeah, it's applicable in a bigger sense because here you have her being given um, like validity by being one of the sources that he uses. And and the reason that they think that is because there's so much of the birth story in Luke that there isn't in the others. Um, and the, the verse about Mary pondered these things and, you know, yeah, and kept them Mary in her heart. Like hid that these things in her heart. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that's kind of like his way of saying, and that's how I know this because she kept all these things in her heart and she told me. And um, so, so you have her being considered a trusted source, you know, that he's going to, and so that's why he's getting all of this, you know, specific insight into these areas of the story that that the others didn't. And so that kind of puts it in the context of why is it in this book in the first place? And also because mm-hmm. showing the reach back to the prophets and the, the Old Testament is going to give validity, right, to the to the idea that it's fulfilling the scriptures and that this is not just some fly-by-night religion that's come out of nowhere, that this is grounded in this, you know, ages past, you know, story that, that God is weaving together. And now Mary's kind of pulling it all together. Thanks for bringing that up, Ilya. That's a a really important point for us to cover. Uh, So now we're going to take a few minutes to place the Magnificat in a uh, different kind of broader context. Uh, Sarah's going to tell us a little bit about some paragraphs from the Catholic Catechism that connect Mary's prayer to some other prayers in the Bible and some of Jesus's prayers. Can you walk us through those catechism paragraphs, Sarah? 
Sure. So the uh, sections of the catechism that uh, we were going to take a look at are uh, 2618 through 2622. And they start, these sections start by explaining that uh, within the Gospels, uh, Mary prays and intercedes in faith at a number of different points. She does so at Cana when she, uh, and this is a fairly close paraphrase of the Catechism itself, um, asks her uh, son for the needs of a wedding feast, um, which in itself is uh, a sign of the wedding feast of the lamb where he gives his body and blood at the request of his church his bride and that sort of anticipates some of the language of revelation um that she is the mother of all the living and that this is why the canticle of mary the magnificat um is the song of both the mother of god and of the church the song of the daughter of zion and of the new people of god the song of thanksgiving for the fullness of graces poured out in the economy of salvation and the song of the poor whose hope is met by the fulfillment of the promises made to our ancestors to abraham and to his posterity forever and i was uh, quoting most of section 2619 at that point so that ultimately um if uh, the prayers of Mary are characterized um, by her being uh, willing to offer her whole being in faith and that this is a uh, mirroring in some way, uh, in some ways of Jesus's own, um, Jesus's own offering of himself uh, for salvation so that Mary again is um, is seen as the mother of God as uh, in some senses the mother of the church but is also an example for us all that we can give that same uh, we can give of ourselves in our entirety in that same way um, and one of the other things if we think about one of the other things that I've been thinking about as we've been thinking about this song and about the offering of prayer and Mary's uh, Magnificat anticipating other aspects of, of Jesus's ministry and of Jesus's prayer, the language in the Magnificat that seems to, um, that seems to, uh, what, oh shoot, what is the word that I'm looking for? Anticipate the Beatitudes. Uh, in her in her language, particularly in that second half. So within the Catholic Church, we're looking at, um, and within the Catechism, we're looking um, again at um, at Mary's faith, at her role within the faith, and in particular, her ability to do so fully and completely. And that that then becomes an example for us all. Are, um, are there any thoughts that any of you all have about um, or any responses to uh, the catechism's uh, commentary? Uh, what I liked about these paragraphs, in addition to the fact that Mary's model of prayer is connected to um, the sacrifice of Jesus is that 
um, the later paragraphs talk about how um, the Magnificat also is connected to the way Jesus prays, um, particularly uh, that he prays in secret and that he focuses his prayer um, outwardly and to God. Uh, 2621 and 2622 point to the Our Father as well, or in Protestant churches, the Lord's Prayer. And I just really liked the idea that um, this radical prayer of Mary is also connected to a prayer at the center of the church, uh, the prayer that teaches all of us how to pray. So not only um, do we get this tight connection between Mary's faith and the faith of Jesus, but uh, our personal faiths are all kind of welcomed in um, to uh, to that series of prayers as well. We're all included, and I I feel really encouraged by that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I don't have any experience with the Catholic Catechism, so it's fascinating to me to see how it ties it all in together. I think that's really important that we see the continuity of of Scripture and of the the big story, like we were saying that that God is weaving through the Bible. And I think that that's something that, um, as a Protestant, I I have noticed that we fall short of. We, we study things individually, and putting it together in a bigger picture and a bigger theology that is all-encompassing is is really important, I think, and very helpful for us to figure out how to like put it into practice and use it in our lives. I'm, I'm glad you responded positively to that, because I, um, I'm just starting to explore. I mean, I don't even want to call myself uh, a baby Catholic because I haven't been confirmed yet, um, though, Lord willing, that will happen at Easter. Uh, but I... I have really been gratified by the largeness of church tradition and the idea that there's this huge history of um, not just the Bible, but we have the catechism and we have uh, the prayers of the saints and to the saints. And it's just a so much bigger world with so much more support um, from prayers of people who came before. And uh, I'm so, so gratified by the largeness of that. Uh, and I thought it would be good to uh, add the catechism into our discussion, especially because um, of everything we've already said about how some faith traditions don't seem to cover all of the Magnificat. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you appreciated that, Aaliyah. Danielle, did you want to say anything about the catechism passages? Yeah, I guess I had a question, you know, coming from this Protestant background, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to write about the Magnificat for the Washington Post was uh, just seeing how it had been so silenced in my own tradition. And so it's really encouraging for me to see these canticles and what is this? It's called a catechism. See, I'm so like outside of the (laughs) catechism. Catechism. There we go. I'm so outside the fold. Um, But I just like some of these are phrases are really powerful. Like the fullness of grace poured out in the economy of salvation. And this being the song of the poor, and that sounds amazing to me. I just wonder, is that the reality of how this is experienced in Catholic churches, like in the United States, I guess, is what I'm thinking about? Well, I, you are right to point out that the Catholic Church in the United States is certainly different than the Catholic Church in other parts of the world. Um, certainly, Catholicism 
uh, is is growing, I think, more in the global south than it is in more privileged countries. Though I don't want to, I mean, I'm, I'm not an authority on this. Uh, but I, I do think one of the reasons that is true in terms of its growth in the global south is the focus of the church on ministering to the poor and, and elevating marginalized communities. Um, I, I didn't hear a lot uh, growing up in the Protestant church about the depth of the social gospel within Catholicism, the idea that um, lots and lots of Catholic charities existed that were about um, serving the people that Christ tells us to serve, orphans and widows and the poor. Um, I didn't hear about people like uh, Jean Vanier or Dorothy Day, um, Catholic socialists, Catholic progressives who um, gave away all their stuff and served the poor. Um, but that that's certainly something that is kind of in the DNA of uh, of a lot of ways that the Catholic Church serves. So... Um, I, I don't want to speak for everyone. And like I said, uh, I'm not sure I have any authority to speak as a Catholic yet. So, uh, Sarah, can you say more about, um, kind of Catholic social ministries? Uh, sure. That, um, the idea of, of ministering to the least among us is, and the idea of taking the message of Mary is, something that I certainly grew up um, being familiar with, in part because uh, the high school that I attended was run by an order of priests known as the Society of Mary. If you're familiar with the Jesuits, um, the Jesuits are, are also known as the Society of Jesus. The Society of Mary are referred to as the Marists. And they have among uh, among their goals as an order uh, service to these groups. Um, they engage in um, in education, in uh, parishes, in prison ministry, and in global ministries, and their um, their ethos is one of adopting Mary's way. Um, in particular, uh, the language of um, of adopting a prayerful life that is um, that is humble, that is secret in um, or in the language of the Catechism, um, that is yeah, that is something that is done in secret, but is also um, focused outward, um, and I'm, I'm actually looking at the Society of Mary's uh, website right now, um, to be instruments of God's mercy working to help others, um, especially those who find themselves on the margins. So at least in my own experience uh, growing up, and I think in part as a result of the schools that I attended, um, yes, this language absolutely was was part of my uh, my growing awareness, my own education, my own catechesis, if you will, um, as a Catholic, was to to be aware of 
um, Catholic social teaching and what that means uh, for our responsibilities as Christians. It, it's certainly one of the biggest things that drew me to Catholicism, the, the real commitment to um, not just elevating the poor, but so many um, so many f- sort of famous Catholics that I've been reading about and learning about that have drawn me to the church. Um, like I, I mentioned, Dorothy Day, who was a, a social reformer who lived alongside the poor, and uh, Jean Vanier, who created the Larche communities uh, where able-bodied adults lived alongside adults with uh, mental and physical disabilities. These are people who really do um, put the gospel to work in their lives and who they live, uh, literally live next to and who they literally order their lives around. Um, so I, I definitely am, am drawn to uh, the Catholic Church in action in that way. Victoria, before we move on, it might be helpful. There might be people who don't know what a catechism is. Um, I know I was at least in high school before I did, but um, because that because of what you were talking about, that um, you know, she was asking how is this actually put into practice. But the catechism, they you memorize it, right? As a child or a young adult, you you have to memorize it. I that certainly has been the case in previous decades. Um, I think memorization is not as hugely emphasized as it was a generation ago, um, though it certainly still has some place in confirmation classes. Um, Maybe Sarah can speak to this more, um, but I I know that there are um, still children's versions of the catechism that that young children are are sort of walked through and that tell you um, pillars of the faith, why God created us, what the purpose of God is, what our purpose is in serving God, and walking through um, creedal things like um, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are um, all made of the same thing, kind of central mm-hmm. central mm-hmm. pillars of, of the theology um, that, that everyone should know. The, um, the essentials we refer to in, in the tagline of our show, when we say in essentials unity, um, that the catechism is is the place where you go to learn um, the essentials of, of church tradition in that way. I like how you tied that in. That was great. <laughs> I do what I can. Um, Sarah, you can probably speak to this clearer than I did, though. Uh, oh, you did a great job with that, Victoria. Um, at, at its most basic, uh, the term catechism is is a summary or an exposition of doctrine uh, that is used as the basis for teaching sacraments. The um, the Baltimore Catechism is is something that uh, Ilia, to to your point, um, some people might be more familiar with. Um, I believe my mother had to uh, had to memorize portions of the Baltimore Catechism in her own uh, religious education classes growing up. Uh, That is not something I experienced um, in my own religion classes, but it, it is, it is a, a tome, a codex that, that contains in it an explication of the, of the pillars of the faith and uses, um, uses uh, roughly as its organizational structure, actually the Nicene Creed. Um, 
and then ex sort of expands into uh, aspects of prayer life and explains the uh, and the sacraments and explains the uh, reasoning behind and uh, the doctrinal foundation for uh, what uh, we as Catholics believe and how we practice. So it, it operates as a, a kind of bridge between the text of the Bible and the lived tradition of the church, as I understand it. Absolutely. Yay, I feel like I'm learning what I need to be learning as a, uh, as a candidate. I'm glad I got that right. I should get a gold star at my next RCIA meeting. Yes, yes, you should. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we should probably move on. Uh, so the last reading we're going to talk about, as we've been hinting uh, this whole time, is uh, an article that Danielle wrote for the Washington Post uh, last Advent. And it's entitled, Mary's Magnificat in the Bible is Revolutionary. Some Evangelicals Try to Silence Her. Danielle, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this piece? Yeah, first of all, I must say that, you know, writers don't get to write the titles <laughs> for their pieces. Yeah, so. that's, uh, that's clearly was an editor's decision. It reads, yes. like, it reads uh, like one. It's not really a hit piece on evangelicals. I really just had this question, like, this parts of this are so revolutionary. Uh, why, why did I not know this? And I, I grew up on the Bible. I grew up on the scriptures. And I'd gotten, I think I'd seen on Twitter this image that this artist named Ben Wildflower had made. And it's just like a woodcut uh, style image with Mary. But she looks really tough and really intense. And it just kind of really highlights these revolutionary aspects of the passage. And I was just so struck by this image. And my curiosity is sort of like what propels me to write. And so I started thinking about all these Christmas songs that I hear. And I don't know, was it Ilya? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. How do you say your name? Ilya? Ilya. Ilya. Okay, I'll start over. So, Ilya, you mentioned, like, listening to Amy Grant, Breath of Heaven, and I was just giggling in my chair because those are the kinds of songs I grew up, you know, hearing about Mary. And so I just started, like, looking on Spotify, like, all the versions of the Magnificat that were really popular. And all of them only focused on the first few verses of the Magnificat, and the rest of them totally just these other portions. Um so I just thought, why is that? And I started researching it a little bit more and just discovered that, yeah, this has been seen as extremely threatening to people in the past. And I think like I found like countries such as India, Guatemala and Argentina, they've even banned like the Magnificat from being recited in liturgy. Um, so, yeah, I know some of my favorite people like Oscar, wow. Oscar Romero and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They all wrote and loved the Magnificat as this intense revolutionary hymn that we should all know. And so I just thought, what is going on here? Why, why does this not match with my vision of Mary? Have it, you know, being a white 
middle class evangelical. And I do. I do think there's some threads there to why this would be seen as troubling and damaging. And I think going back to an earlier conversation about Luke and, and how it's positioned, you know, two Gentiles, I think there's this huge theme of empire in Luke and what it means to live in a world where there are these authorities and powers that seek to dehumanize and to utilize people's bodies for profit, you know, at the expense of of their souls and being made in the image of God. I think that Magnificat addresses that um, and other aspects of Luke do as well, which means that if we do come from some of these places, so if we do have privilege, you know, if we're have more status than other people in a society, if we are rich, if we have enough food in our bellies, the Magnificat might be inherently sort of, you know, it might not seem like good news to us because we might be the ones that are saying, oh, wow, are we going to be sent away? Are we going to be cast down? And so that's just what I sort of assumed. And, And as I wrote this piece and got to talk to a few more people, I do think there are some other threads there as far as you know, the history of Protestants trying to distance themselves from the Catholic tradition and therefore really downplaying the role of Mary. But I'm not a scholar, Mm -hmm. so I kind of wanted to throw that out to you three. Um, If this is something that you think resonates with you, that Mary herself has been downplayed. And then, of course, I would love to keep talking if, if you think that one of the reasons why a lot of these verses get skipped over is because they are about the rich. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about downplaying Mary as kind of a pendulum swing away from Catholicism and anything high church at all. And also in the conservative church like I was in, there's also a a reaction against anything that sounds like feminism of any kind, especially in the 80s and 90s. And so I think you have this kind of double thing that's keeping the church, at least where I grew up, from even wanting to, to really engage with this part of the text at all. I, I certainly think um, in terms of time period, you know, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, um, with the kind of moral majority period um, of Protestantism and certainly into our current um, sort of prosperity gospel period, I think you're right about um, being scared of, of criticizing wealth, too. Um, I think so much popular expression of the faith is really tied up in that God wants us to be rich and successful. And I don't think, um, you know, I I think that that is a popular Mm -hmm. message and not an actual biblical message. Uh, Sarah, what about you? Do you have uh, Um, anything to add? I I can see I'm kind of coming from the from from another angle as as far as this goes. So um, so having been in in a church that um, that tries very hard to see Mary in her fullness and to try to bring that message uh, in all of its complexities to a congregation. Um, I think that it's certainly, I hope that it's work that can continue. And I, and I hope that, um, that some of what, um, some of what you're articulating, Danielle, can, uh, can 
encourage a, a broader audience to to contemplate the fullness of the message contained in the Magnificat. Yeah, and I think that the Magnificat is increasing in popularity as far as, you know, my peers and people um, that I interact with. Um, I, I really... I hear it talked about a lot more. I think like even, you know, five years ago, I did not know that that prayer was called the Magnificat, but I hear it talked about so much more. Do you guys think this is also true? I do. I think, um, I think that's true for me too. It was about five or six years ago when I first heard that word used. Um, I was doing a class uh, on Lectio Divina and and praying the scriptures. And one of the first um, scriptures that we prayed through was the Magnificat. And I remember being blown, blown away just by how radical the text was and thinking like, this is the, this sort of social inversion is the kind of thing I want to pray for. Um, and, and being really, really moved by that. I think in general, there's definitely a movement towards a little bit more um, liturgy as, I don't know, the millennials are getting older and there's a whole story about why that might be. But, but so I think that some church ideas um, are coming out uh, more and more, even with Protestant, uh, non-denominational, evangelical, whatever. Um, I think that people are more interested in that. I think the internet has helped kind of break down some of the barriers. You know, there was a time when you just didn't really know what was going on behind the doors of a different church. And and now there's a lot more kind of um, discussion between um, denominations, religions, and all that kind of stuff. So I think that that has something to do with it too. That's a really fascinating point about the internet and, uh, and kind of bridging gaps between traditions. I mean, I, I know I, as a person who founded a podcast that's about faith, I feel, you know, attached to that, that means of expansion. Um, but I, I'd, I'd love to, uh, to think about that more or perhaps, um, have, a have an episode about, um, how the internet hmm. has perhaps enabled interfaith discussions. That's an, an idea we should maybe put on the slate yeah, that uh, sounds for great. next year. Okay, um, would anybody like to uh, leave us with one final thought before we move to uh, everybody's favorite segment, our recommendation segment? One of the, as as we've been talking, one of the things that, that I keep coming back to are the, the final lines of the Magnificat that um, he has come to help, to the help of his servant Israel, for he's remembered his promise of mercy promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. And as we were talking about shifts in generational shifts and what, um, you know, what, what millennials or, or Gen X, Y, or whatever they're calling the, the group between Gen X and the millennials, which I think I actually fall into. Um, even in, even in the Catholic church, there's, there's a renewal, um, among some younger Catholics uh, of a move towards tradition and I towards some, some more traditional practices or seeking, seeking a connection that 
that to me seems to echo this promise being made reaching back to the Old Testament, this, this sort of desire for connection and for historicity in a way that, that I think has the potential to be pretty exciting um, ecumenically as, as we move forward. Yeah, I, I, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just want to say that, you know, yeah, as go ahead. I have sort of come to terms with, you know, my own faith tradition and evangelicalism in particular, um, you know, I don't want to be seen as someone who's just bashing on it or who only critiques it. But I have to say, it's clear that I have had to go outside my faith tradition to really have a full understanding of the importance of Mary, of the importance of this prayer. And I'm so grateful for places like the internet, which have really helped me to connect to these other ways of viewing it. And so I guess if there's anybody listening who who does come from a similar background to me, I don't think we have to be scared of looking to other traditions to help illuminate these people that were already always there. And I just, I guess I just will say I'm so grateful. I have been so moved and so influenced by so many Catholic writers and thinkers. And I think one of the greatest gifts to me is this newfound love of Mary that I have this person. I never thought I would love because they seem so quiet and so dull. And um, yes, I just, I guess I'm feeling a lot of gratitude just listening to you three talk and I'm just so happy that I get to learn and to learn to love Mary. And we're so happy that you were able to be a part of this conversation with us. Uh, it's been really helpful to me too, as I um, journey from one tradition to another to, to think about that. And like you said, Danielle, I don't want to, um, come across as, as bashing the tradition in which I was raised. Um, I, you know, I, I love evangelicalism. I love the people in my family who um, raised me in the church and who taught me to pray and read the scriptures. Um, but I, I do think that um, sometimes a conversation is richer with more voices in it. And like you said, um, I, I get a lot of... Um, a lot of richness from learning more about Mary and learning more about um, traditions where she's more prominent. So uh, thanks, thanks for expressing that too, because it's something that I've, I've been feeling in a little bit of a different way. Okay, uh, I think it's time to transition into our final segment. Uh, where we recommend things we think you should explore further, read, watch, or listen to. Danielle, since you're our guest, yeah, you I just get want to, to reiterate the artist that really sparked my imagination for Revolutionary Mary. His name is Ben Wildflower, and you can find him on Instagram and you can find him on Twitter. And he has some kind of intense pieces. Uh, but if I just would encourage everyone to look and meditate on his visual of the Magnificat. You can also find it on my article um, that I wrote for the Washington Post, but taking some time to just sort of sit with that. I sent it as my Christmas card two years ago, and a lot of my friends put it up on their fridge, and they will text me sometimes just like, you have no idea how much conversation this has sparked, <laughs> because um, yeah, it kind of catches people off guard, and then we get to be like, yeah, that's actually in the Bible. <laughs> so 
I would highly recommend uh, checking out Ben Wildflower. It is a fantastic image. I uh, I have wanted it on a t-shirt for some time, but every time I look, the t-shirt is always sold out. Um, but we will we'll link to um, the image of your article, and we'll link to uh, the artist's social Great. media in our show notes as well. So thanks for that. To, uh, tonight, you? I have a couple of recommendations uh, for those of you out there who might be interested in hearing a little bit more about a, a Catholic perspective on Mary and Advent and on, um, and on Advent generally. These are a couple of videos that are done by Bishop Robert Barron as part of his Word on Fire ministry. The first of them is called Mary and Advent, and the other one is actually called the Advent Revolution. Um, and they're both pretty compelling explorations of this liturgical season that we're in, how Mary fits into it, and some some new ways to think about these these weeks that precede the celebration of Christmas. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Bishop Barron videos um, over the past year or so. Word on Fire is a really compelling ministry. Uh, their videos are really well produced, and uh, Bishop Barron is, is super thoughtful. So um, I'll second those recommendations, and uh, you guys should should definitely check those out. I have two. Um, Liam, the have first one us? is a blog post by the late Rachel Held Evans, um, one of our uh, favorites that we've talked about many times on the podcast before. But um, she has an article that she put out a couple years ago called uh, Mary the Magnificat and an Unsentimental Advent. Um, and it was written in 2017. And it just is, it kind of, when I started thinking about it when we started talking about this show because it really kind of echoes what we're saying about how there is a, a social activism to the Magnificat and what that means. She kind of applies it to some things that are going on um, in our country and in the world today and just how um, Mary is the opposite of passive and, and all of those things that we've been talking about. Um, but it's definitely worth a read. And then the other one is um, a, an a resource for all the parents out there or teachers or whatever. It's uh, called Truth in the Tinsel. It's a little ebook that you can get, and it's an Advent um, activity book where you do a little craft every day with your kids, and you you know work up from December first to December twenty fifth, and you tell a small piece of the Christmas story every day of December with these little crafts that you make, these little ornaments that you make. Um, and the reason that I recommend it is because day seven, which is ironically today, the day that we're recording, is on the Magnificat. And it's an entire day dedicated to just reading that entire passage and then doing a little craft and talking about Mary's song and about what she, you know, did. And it's, you know, designed for children. But I was thinking today when I was doing it with my children that, you know, my, my daughter's seven and we've been doing this for four years and she's already heard it more times, four more times than I had by the time I was seven. Um, the, the Magnificat passage, just because we've read it every year through this little craft activity. So I think it's really neat that they include that in one of the 24 activities of the month, uh, and then it gets its own feature. So um, I recommend that as a, a fun Advent thing overall, and then specifically because it emphasizes the Magnificat. Thanks. I'm uh, looking forward to checking 
the rest of that out, it sounds like um, some really good stuff there. So I'm going to recommend a prayer that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about um, Elizabeth's words to Mary, uh, Blessed art thou among women. That's the first line of uh, a Catholic prayer called the Hail Mary. And uh, I've been praying the Hail Mary for a while, actually. Um, It's one of the first things I started doing when I first started thinking that I might be called to Catholicism. about two years ago and uh, about six months ago I started praying it um, every morning it's the first thing I do when I wake up and every night it's the last thing I do before I fall asleep and I'm just getting so much out of that kind of short centering activity it's a really short prayer Um, it doesn't take very long to say from start to finish Um, So if you think you might want to make Mary a bigger part of your spiritual life, I'd recommend that you um, check out the Hail Mary, read it, think about it. And that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for our future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. And you can check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Ilea, Sarah, and Danielle, I'm Victoria. Tune in again in January when we'll discuss the Hebrew midwives of Exodus chapter 1. Until then, we here at the CFP wish you all a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas, and we leave you with our usual sign-off. In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.